drop to hanky drop. The speaker is in the house. Very, very happy that this bill moves, moves us forward. Big changes, billions in the budget, national attention. No corporation is above the law and the people of this state. What passed, what did not, and at what cost? We have a job to protect the state of Florida. Days from an expected surge, a state bill targets migrants. It solves nothing it purports to address. This bill will now put Florida on offense. I feel the need to remind you that immigrants are people. The big news of the week and the newsmakers all live this week in South Florida. Good Sunday morning. I'm Glennon Milberg. Welcome. We begin with the end. The hanky dropped Friday on a lawmaking session for the record books. Your state lawmakers passed an unprecedented $117 billion state budget and more than 300 new bills on the way to becoming law. Some already have. Some in the Republican supermajority called the session epic. State Democrats have some other choice words. Among the controversies and party line votes, did you know the vast majority of the bills did pass with more bipartisan spirit? So why don't we start right there with the Speaker of the Florida House of Representatives. Paul Renner is live with us today on the program. Mr. Speaker, it is so good to have you on the program today. Great to be with you, Glenna. So I want to start with, you know, this session, there were some headlining controversies, a lot of party line votes that made the news, a lot of state division that made the news. But I was so um, intrigued to see that I think the figure I saw, nine out of 10 bills passed with bipartisan support. So I want to kind of start there with something that's pretty monumental, and that is kid care expansion. Uh, the expansion sure. of the component of Medicaid, that was one of your big priorities. This was the first sort of Medicaid expansion in the state in 25 years and allows more families to qualify for insurance for their children. So I want to start there a little bit and, and talk about this is a function, I'm guessing, of a whopping uh, budget that you were able to work with. Well, it is. And we did a couple things. Of course, you know, uh, one of the, the issues that does divide us is abortion. And we took a strong stand for life in the bill we passed. But what I've said is that we want to make sure that children are well taken care of once they come into this world. And so we did a couple things. We also raised the reimbursement rate for pediatricians that see young children on the Medicaid program. More than half of all children uh, born in Florida are born into families that are on Medicaid, that program for those that have very low income. And so we said we want to make sure that when they go see a pediatrician that they're not, you know, in hiding somewhere, not wanting to see them, but we pay them well. So we've gone from one of the bottom states to one of the top states in terms of what uh, doctors uh, that see children get paid, which means better access, better quality care for our children. And then you mentioned kid care and what that really says, and I don't see it as much as a Medicaid expansion, as much as it is pro-family and pro-work, because essentially on kid care, you uh, pay 10 or so dollars, 10 or 20 dollars per child on that program, and you make one extra dollar when you, when you go off that program and your uh, charges go from that to $250 per child. So we literally had people coming in and saying, can I do an affidavit 
to turn down the job promotion that I was offered so I can keep my kids' health insurance. So what we've said as Republicans is, look, we believe in, in going from welfare to work, and that's really what this is. And we also believe in families and supporting our families and our children. So you can make an extra dollar, and we kind of tier that out. So rather than going from 10 or $20 to 250 it may go to 50 or 75 to 100 It's more gradual, so as you make more money, your rates do go up, and you eventually get to that full price of 250 but not right away. It's what people call the fiscal cliffs that have been set into the welfare system, which are really damaging and are a disincentive to work and getting off of welfare. So we want people to get into a life of independence, and that's what that great program will do. So there's something you said that, that I want to just go back to. You seem very reluctant to call this a, uh, an expansion of Medicaid, um, you know, this, this month and the past couple of months because of the end of pandemic standards. Uh, I think the figure is something like 900,000 people in Florida are about to lose coverage. Why not do a Medicaid expansion with the kind of budget we have, especially since most of that is federal dollars? Well, for this very reason, we have the money available to us to raise pediatric rates. We have the money available to us to take care of children. Florida's Medicaid system has a robust coverage for the true safety net, children in poverty, the elderly, the disabled, those who can't, you know, can't simply can't work and support themselves on their own. And so what the Medicaid expansion uh, is typically described as is that uh, Obamacare Medicaid expansion, which is mainly over, I think, over 70 percent are adult uh, working age, non-disabled adults without children. So these are people that are of working age, they're not disabled, um, they don't have children at home. They, if they worked even half time, could qualify for one of the exchange plans and get some subsidy for their premiums. So we have been, I am very strongly opposed to that form of Medicaid expansion because what it does, Glenna, is it doesn't leave us the extra money to do more for those that are on the true safety net where 90, 100% of us agree that we want to take care of people who can't take care of themselves, like our children in poverty. It's not their fault that they're, they're in that situation. We want to make sure they have the very best health care available. And by not doing that large Medicaid expansion for those that are able to work and just are choosing not to, we can provide more money for children and the disabled and the elderly. Mr. Speaker, another priority of yours, I know, and you actually were on this program uh, just after it was filed, the universal vouchers, one of the first things to pass, one of the first things that the governor signed, really a sea change in Florida education, depending on people's perspectives, uh, up or down, right? So um, one of the components that we've looked at and talked about, and I want to get your perspective on, is even to this day, it launches next year, uh, people with families with kids in from kindergarten to high school can choose whatever school they want to go to but even the house analysts aren't really sure of the costs and then there are questions of how the accountability for education will work are those are those concerns at all as we ramp up to what is a huge change for education in Florida well, Glenna, there's been a recent uh, estimating conference, and at that estimating conference are members from the governor's staff, the Senate, the House, but also significantly each and every one of the 67 school districts. We have 67 counties, so all of Florida's school district superintendents also signed off on that estimate. What we did, though, is we set aside a very large amount of money, not only for any potential uh, oversubscription to that program, but also something great for the school districts because they get a, an amount of money per, per student at 
the beginning of the year, and let's say Miami-Dade has an influx of an extra 20,000 kids, they don't get extra money. Their, their uh, amount per student just goes down until they can get that uh, trued up at the end of the year. And that may take months or even a year to get that money back. And so what this additional fund, it's $350 million, will do is make sure that never happens. So the school districts can draw down that money so they remain at that 8,500 or so per child throughout the school year, even if they have additional students come into the school districts, which is unrelated entirely to the school choice program. But what, here's what I'll say about school choice. When it started under Jeb Bush 25 years ago, we were at the bottom of all uh, states in education. And what it, school choice does is it means that there's not only an interest in, into the schoolhouse, but also an exit door. You're not stuck in the school that you're zip coded for, but you have an opportunity to leave and go somewhere that best suits your children's needs. And from 25 years ago, when we began school choice, that competition has made our public schools better. And now we're at the top. And in fact, we've been number one in higher education for several years now. We were just ranked by U.S. News, I believe it is, as number one in education overall. So the number one state in the country, and that is in large part because of the competition that school choice generates. Now, what the bill does is a couple, a few exciting things. First and foremost, children with disabilities like autistic children who have been on a wait list for those choice programs will be cleared completely. And that's a large part of the funding that is in this bill so that children, for example, with autism will have those special additional services that they need to live a life of independence. It also removes all the income caps and says anybody, anybody in Florida can go wherever they want. And then finally, it provides what's called an ESA, which so it's not just a, a, a scholarship to a private school, for example, but a, a homeschool kid could say, look, I want to partner with my local district school, say in a physics course that is is a week into that class and traditional uh, public schools. So it really goes in all directions. It means true customization for each and every family, each and every student. This, um, this is something that other states have done, and so it'll be, to your point, really interesting to see the effects. I, Mr. Speaker, we have to, I think there's a couple of glitches in the, uh, in the technology here, and we have to take a break anyway. So why don't we just sit tight for two minutes and come back and talk about a couple of other things before we let you go? Sounds great. All right, thanks. Speaker of the House, Paul Renner, with us live this morning. Mr. Speaker, I wanted to, um, we, we have relatively short time together always on television, and to, to know the leader is to know the man, so I, I wanted to get your personal perspective on a couple of things. This has been a session that a lot of people tagged as the culture war session, the divide. Uh, there were a lot of bills to that end. You mentioned the abortion restriction bill, the restrictions on things like teaching, sex, health, gender health. Um, and I wanted to get your perspective on that word culture wars. When, when people talked about that, when you saw the division on some of these things, wh what was, take us on the inside. Wh how do you hear that? Well, the way we see it is we took a stand for not only children, but in defense of childhood. Unfortunately, there are some activists that want to obliterate that distinction. And so we have said, look, 
Let kids be kids. Uh, let's not have indoctrina indoctrination or sexualization of our kids in school. We have almost half of our kids who aren't reading on grade level. Uh, we need to focus on that. And one of our bills this year that, again, is in that 80 90 percent that, that was a priority of mine is making sure we devote extra resources, better methodologies to getting kids on grade level, both in reading and math. That's where the focus should be, not on allowing activists into our school to uh, sexualize our children. And that's that's simply not right. So, you know, if, if we had it, it is not my place to take a, a side or not, and I have no horse in this race, but I have heard a lot of the opposition who take issue with the word indoctrination for a lot of people. They're just their families and their lives are may not be what other people call you know their their families and their lives and a lot of those people you saw come to Tallahassee travel to the committee meetings and speak um, very pointedly very personally and uh, some of those people expressed real fears not about what might technically be in the bills and be new laws but perceptions and chilling effects that those bills and laws might have and and that perception is very real to a lot of people. And I wonder if you would speak to those fears and address those constituents who do have real fears with some of the changes being made. I think those fears are completely false. They're politically motivated. Uh, but they work, you know, and so they go out with some help from uh, friendly media outlets that that say that somehow we're against anybody. We're not against anybody, but we're for children, all children, whether they're gay or straight or what have you. We're just saying that let's focus on allowing kids to be kids. And and uh, so that's what this has been uh, about. I think it's been a fantastic session for children. You know, one of the things we did in our tax relief is make sure that baby formula and diapers and strollers will no longer uh, have sales tax imposed on them so that when parents bring a, a child home from the hospital, they can have a, a little bit more money in their pocket to raise that child. It's been a very, very pro-child session, and it's unfortunate that people have tried to weaponize that, but I can tell you there's nobody in my caucus that has anything against anybody, but that's the narrative that they run with, that if you don't support me or if you want to do something that somehow you're a hater, nobody's a hater, but we do believe and we will stand up unapologetically for the right of children to remain children uh, at a very young age. And these, this idea that we're going to allow books in there that you know, teach kids how to um, hook up with a stranger for sex when they're in middle school is, is just not appropriate in a, in a classroom setting. We need to focus on education, and that's where we'll remain our focus. We're number one in education for a reason, and it's not because we let activists take over and, and come in between our kids and their education. I want to go back to what you were just talking about a little bit, the tax cuts that you've made for families across the board and for some business as well. Um, I, I think I saw a billion two in tax cuts coming down the pike on different things, consumer goods. Is that a function of this, this budget, $117 billion? Is this a sustainable budget? Is this a budget that is flush with money from pandemic era um, like ARA money and federal money. Can, can you, as a lawmaking body, go forward in the next couple of years and sustain this kind of spending? Yes, because this is a balanced budget. Uh, we have a balanced budget requirement. We set aside after all of that, after all that spending and that tax relief, it was actually about 2.7 billion when you count the out years and some of the local effects and whatnot. We uh, have a balanced budget. We have the highest amount of reserves we've ever had. So this is a very, very healthy uh, budget. Uh, we're AAA credit rating, uh, rated by all the credit rating agencies. 
But um, we were allowed to do other things when it comes to affordability beyond tax relief, such as Senator Pasadomo's great bill on affordable housing, making sure our workforce, our teachers, our nurses, our police and fire have a place to live and they don't have to drive an hour to work. That was major, major uh, legislation that doesn't get talked a lot about because it's not controversial. We also uh, reformed our litigation climate, which will bring down the cost and when it comes to affordability on people and, uh, and did other things that, uh, such as hurricane relief, um, providing support and also new legislation to uh, improve our mitigation techniques to make sure that the next hurricane will be even more prepared than we have in the past. So there's a lot out there um, that is not in that 6 or 10% of things that are controversial that people would be incredibly proud of. What I would say is we have a governor who gets results done. You know, we have Washington, D.C. that can't fix anything on issue after issue. When we came and talked to people about what are your concerns, well, the hurricanes, affordability, affordable housing, we solved all of those things. Data privacy, making sure that your data is not scooped up by the Googles and Apples of the world and sold without your knowledge or consent. And again, protecting our children so when they go on Coco Melon or some video that they're not having their data scooped without the parents' knowledge or consent. These are really, really important things that we did in this legislation legislative session that don't get enough uh, airtime, so I appreciate you giving me that chance to do so. Well, I, I want you to know that um, Senator Pasadomo was with us. We talked all about the Live Local Act as well, and actually that was sponsored by Miami Senator Alexis Kalatayud, and so we absolutely are addressing all of those things. We have very little time. You have a lot of bills to talk about in the minute we have left together. What, what was left undone? What didn't you do that you were hoping to do? You know, I would I would say none none of those things. I met with my chief of staff and we went through a five page list of priorities, many of which we didn't even get to today, and every single one of them, Glenna, happened. And so this was the most productive state legislature. And again, eighty or ninety percent of it would be agreed upon by eighty or ninety percent of your listeners that has ever happened in the state of Florida's history, but I would say in any state's history, and that's testament to a fantastic governor that works well with us, a fantastic Senate president who I have an excellent, excellent relationship, and that flows all the way down, including uh, a lot of the bills that we talked about that I had Democrats involved in uh, because they were ready to go. Uh, we did a lot on sickle cell that affects a lot of African Americans in our community. We did things that have not been done uh, when Democrats were in charge for over 100 years, and so we're focused on addressing the real-life problems of Floridians and making their lives better than they were before. It's not just about, you know, the issues that do divide us, but it's really about solving real problems with real solutions, and I'm confident we did that this year. There's nothing left, but we'll have more to do, I'm sure, uh, when things come up next year. Mr. Speaker, it's great to have you with us. I know there are a lot of people uh, in your caucus and a lot of Democrats who have so many different perspectives and arguments and debates, and some of them are actually having a rally in a little while. Um, but we appreciate your leadership and so appreciate your time on this Sunday. Thank you, Glenn. It's great to be with you and your listeners. Thanks. So many bills, so little time. Up next, we're taking some more of those to two South Florida House leaders, Democrat and Republican, immigration, property insurance, medical care. There's a lot. Stay tuned. This week, that 
that U.S. Title 42 tool to expel migrants is set to expire. And so those on the front lines are expecting a surge in border crossings. And that comes as Florida is ramping up state law addressing people living in Florida without legal status. We want to talk about uh, that bill headed to the governor and as many others as we can possibly fit in with two South Florida reps, both leaders in their respective parties, Daniel Perez, Republican, repping a slice of Southwest Miami-Dade, and in line to be House Speaker, Dottie Joseph is Democrat, representing parts of Northeast Miami-Dade. She is also a minority leader pro tem. And so nice to have you both together on the program today. Hi, welcome. Hey, Glenna, thanks for having us. So a lot of bills. Um, I, I'd rather go deep than wide. So I want to start with that immigration bill. And that is sort of a multi-layered bill that we can talk about. One of the components is officially funding the migrant relocation program. We first saw it um, kind of pop up when we reported on Venezuelans who were sent to uh, Martha's Vineyard on Florida taxpayer money without really knowing much about it. Danny Perez, now there's 12 million. There's like a 2.0 plan. It's out for bid. Um, what what has changed and why why should Florida be paying for this? Yeah, Glenna, and, and it's important that people understand that this bill was a work in progress. The final product was significantly different than where it started. The uh, transportation program of the $12 million that, that you just mentioned, that is solely for people that have been transported into the state of Florida. One of the things that I've heard amongst my constituents is, well, what if I am in the car with a person who is an undocumented immigrant? Uh, is that now my responsibility? The answer is absolutely no. But what, we're, what we are trying to do is deter undocumented immigrants from coming to the state of Florida, which truthfully is the job of the federal government. But as a speaker just mentioned not long ago, and I would assume most people would agree, uh, the federal government is doing one of the worst jobs in the history of the United States when it when it comes to immigration and controlling illegal immigration coming through our southern border. So in Florida, we're trying to do our best to protect our state from uh, undocumented immigrants, many times criminals being transported into our own backyard. So to your point, I, I think everyone is pretty much in agreement there is a border crisis, although there is no agreement on why and how that's happening. Dottie Joseph, another part of this bill is um, sort of taking away the opportunity for undocumented who live in South Florida, undocumented people, to have things like driver's licenses, uh, requiring hospitals and businesses to ask about status and report it. Uh, what, what is wrong with trying to keep people legal? Well, there's nothing wrong with trying to keep people legal. The problem is with this bill, it's overbroad in its administration. I want to just address some comments that were made. Um, the federal government does have funds to transport people that are legally admitted into the country. Unfortunately, we have a governor that obfuscates the federal obligations, including with this bill. Um, back in September of 2021, the governor signed an executive order that prohibited federal agencies, uh, well, actually state agencies, from accepting um, federal dollars to engage in the transport that they're legally required to do. And now with this bill, there's a smuggling provision that also does not create an exception to allow for the federal government to do its job. We talked, you just asked about, you know, the cost with um, people going to the hospital. There are federal dollars dedicated for that. So there doesn't need to be any state charge for any of the things that we're talking about. And as 
currently drafted, the bill that we just passed, would absolutely criminalize a family member, a church member, even a doctor or an EMT that's transporting somebody into the state, um, even just across lines, if that's the closest hospital, for um, like emergency life-saving treatment if they know or should know that that person um, is quote-unquote illegal. Now, how that's supposed to be determined is a whole different issue, um, but this law in its current form is extremely overbroad. So that's an interesting point, Danny, because when someone comes when someone comes across the border and is going through the asylum process, they they are not obviously a legal resident, they're not a citizen, but they are in a legal process. So how do you differentiate between someone who is undocumented and truly not lawfully in the United States or someone who has crossed the border and is awaiting the very lengthy at this moment process? of their asylum case. So technically speaking, they are waiting, they're, but they're waiting, but they're legal. So how, do, how is that differentiated? Well, those are two completely different scenarios. And I'll answer your question first, and then I wanna make a comment to Representative Joseph's um, opinion. If you are a person seeking political asylum, uh, you are not considered what we would consider in the state of Florida an undocumented person that is getting smuggled into the state of Florida illegally. Those are two completely different people, someone who is seeking political asylum and someone who has crossed our border illegally and trying to come and seek harbor in Florida. That's number one. Number two, Glenna, is when we're talking about hospitals and what their responsibility is within this bill, number one, I want to point out any person, it doesn't matter if they're undocumented or documented, if they reach our hospital because there's a necessity, they will receive treatment. We have a moral obligation to seek to make sure that that person is healthy and able to make it through whatever it is that they are there for. And we will always do that. That is not affected in this bill. What is affected for hospitals in this bill is the requirement for hospitals to acknowledge how much in a fiscal amount, how much is being used towards the treatment of undocumented immigrants. That is completely separate from the duty to actually seek treatment or to give treatment to these people. Um, but but there's been there's been a, a rumor, there's been uh, kind of a, a, a deafening um, amount of false narratives uh, that here in the state of Florida that churches aren't going to be able to help illegal immigrants and that's just that's just not true if they want to give uh, give clothing to, to an undocumented person they have every right to do so the same way you or I do but that is different than smuggling a person knowingly into the state of Florida that has entered this country illegally and didn't abide by the rule of law that's simply what we're doing trying to abide by the rule of law and I, I believe that we're doing that here in the state of Florida so Dottie, can you can you respond to that because the especially in South, especially in South Florida I mean this this is we are on we're not a border state but we kind of are a border state and and all of those things you know they affect a lot of people here Absolutely I would love to respond to it so uh in the bill itself, it defines unauthorized alien as anybody who is not legally authorized to work here, and it cites a particular federal statute. And that just is an example as to why the state government should stay out of federal immigration law, because there's lots of people who qualify to be here legally, but aren't legally authorized to work. Now, this is the definition of the bill itself. So it would encapsulate asylum seekers who have not gotten a work authorization. It would encapsulate people who are here trying to get VAWA, violence against women visas, U visas, T visas, and whole categories of people. 
The thing about the immigration timeline, and for folks who haven't really interacted with it as, as directly as a lot of other people have, it's fluid. You can overstay your visa and suddenly become undocumented, whereas you were documented when you got here. So the examples that were given, we're talking about churches. So let's say you're a church um, that's in Tallahassee, but you have some members across the border, whether it's in Alabama or Georgia, and you go to pick them up and you know that they're illegal. They entered the country at some point in their distant past, they're undocumented, but you still want to bring them in. They, under the overbroad terms of this bill, would be subject to criminal prosecution for smuggling. Now, you and I know that that's not smuggling. Most people know that that's not smuggling, but as defined in the bill, and I've provided countless amendments to try to clarify that so that these um, oversights are not the punishment that people feel, but all of those were summarily rejected because of this just, I so, want to say, close-minded. Well, it sounds like it. it sounds like we're talking about letter of the law versus spirit of the law. Danny, just in the minute we have left before we take a break, I just want to raise something that I've heard. Um, workforce for especially agricultural industries. There, there are people who are very worried that this will really be uh, an effect, a depleting effect on the workforce of a lot of those service industries. Do you see that? I don't, and a lot of those conversations took place before this bill passed and as it went through the process. We spoke with many of our seasonal fruits and vegetables uh, uh, companies. We, we spoke with different construction on the res on the res residential and commercial uh, side of things, and, and we don't expect that. The E-Verify process, the way it's gonna work is it's gonna be for companies that have 25 or more employees, and any any employee that is currently a part of, of, that, um, of that employer uh, th that employee wouldn't have to be part of this new E-Verify process. It's for new people going forward. But nonetheless, nonetheless, um, we've we've worked with with many people at the table from all different walks of life to make sure that that's not uh, one of the problems that will come before us. Us in the state of Florida, uh, the ones that voted for this bill, we don't believe that it'll be affected, and we believe we believe it's it's the right thing to do. All right, we are going to take a very quick break. We will have more with the representatives when we come right back. Florida representatives Dottie Joseph, Democrat from Northeast Miami-Dade, and Danny Perez, Republican from Southwest Miami-Dade. We've got Miami-Dade covered today. Um, and I want to talk about fresh from coming back from that uh, session that ended on Friday. So much to talk about. I want to get very South Florida specific, though, and one of the biggest issues, property insurance. There was a bill that passed in the House the, and the Senate, as a matter of fact, that um, another tweak to what was done for, from special session from property insurance tweaks seems like never-ending tweaks to this property insurance issue. This time, uh, more accountability for insurers, kind of adding fines for insurers who don't do the right thing, but nothing yet, it appears, that will bring down imminently the cost of insurance. Dottie Joseph, to you first. What needs to be done for South Floridians to feel relief and for insurers fairly to be able to do business in this state? Absolutely. So uh, leader Francis Driscoll proposed some uh, reforms during the last special session that we had on property insurance. For those who may not know, I'll just recap and tell you that um, since Republicans have been in charge, uh, property insurance rates have gone through the roof and continue to rise. 
uh, during one of the last special sessions, we gave another billion dollars to insurance companies. Um, and I say we, my colleagues across the aisle, um, and with those bailouts, three out of 165 companies have taken advantage of it, only three, because they didn't get to the heart of it. Whereas the bill proposed by Leader Driscoll would have proposed a cap on rates, which would have a real impact on consumers. It also made sure that interest that was earned from the funds that were there also went back to consumers. All we've seen from my colleagues across the aisle are billions of dollars in bailouts for the insurance companies and making it harder for the consumer to hold the insurance companies accountable. While the bill that we just passed this last session um, does some accountability measures, those accountability measures were the ones that the lawyers used to have to protect the consumer. Now they've rested them with the OIR, the Office of Insurance Regulation, which had not already been doing its job. So so you can expect to see your rates increase and if not get kicked off your insurance as a result of these policies. So, so Danny, you hear the word, we've heard the word bailouts for the insurance companies. Um, the, it's such a, you know, we talk about insurance, it's such a complicated layered business. And I think that gives businesses the advantage over consumers and maybe even lawmakers to really want to help businesses stay afloat, but at what cost? So what, what was done this time that makes you feel confident confident that this will be a fix. Look, number one issue in my district here in District 116 is property insurance. So I, I, I hear my constituents. It's why we keep going back and we keep fixing the product. This is my sixth year in the legislature. There hasn't been a year that's gone by that we haven't tried to address this issue. Is this bill going to solve the issue completely? And is everyone, are everyone's rates going to go down uh, by the time this segment is over? No, it's not. But we're trying to chip away to get there. Uh, to say that this is a bailout just, just isn't true. I mean, for those three companies that took advantage of the RAP, and that's exactly what the program is called, in order for them to be able to pull down that money from state government, they had to, by, by mandatory, uh, provisions in in the bill, uh, they had to lower the uh, the rates of those policyholders within that carrier's own company. So we had direct effect to the consumer for those three that actually used this money, which was them lowering the rates. However, that being said, you know what, what we understand is that within the next 18 to 24 months, we'll start to see either a stabilization or a decrease in the rates. Um, that is without any guarantee, but we we've tried to tackle some of the issues. We have made a, a good amount of. Uh, transparency for the insurers, making sure that appraisals aren't being fixated and aren't, and aren't being messed with, uh, that there is no fraud behind that. And then on the other side, litigation has been something that, that has been crucial here in the state of Florida. Uh, it, it, is, it is widely known that most of the litigation in this country when it comes to property insurance uh, resides in our own backyard. And so we have to balance the ability for a, a policyholder to hold the insurance company uh, accountable and making sure that the, that the policy that they are paying for is something they can eventually collect on for the right reasons. But we, can't, we have to make sure that there isn't any frivolous uh, lawsuits that are coming through the pipeline. And we believe that with, with the changes that we've done to the offer of judgment uh, and the repeal of one-way attorney fee statute that we're gonna get there on the litigation front and eventually get to a decrease in the rates. That's the goal for everyone, whether you're Republican or Democrat, we all want to see rates go down. Yeah, of course, but do you see that you mentioned no no assurances. Do you see at some point, especially in the Republican supermajority that the House and Senate have right now, at some point do you see going to the insurers and say, we've given you this, we've you've asked us to do this, we've done this, now we're gonna hold you accountable with XYZ caps. Do, do you see that as a possibility at some point? 
I think all options are on the table. And for me personally, Glenn, and as you mentioned, you know, I, God willing, I continue to get reelected by, by my constituents. I have another three years left in the House. For me, I'm, I'm actually very, I'm very happy of the timing on this bill, uh, simply because I will be here to make sure that, that the implementations are actually held to the highest standards, which is the reason that we passed this bill. So insurers are going to be held to the highest standard that they've ever been held uh, by me personally and, and, and by the rest of my party. But I would hope by the Democrats as well. I hope this is a bipartisan issue that all of us can agree on and holding everyone accountable based on the policies that we've already passed. And look, I'm sure Leader Driscoll and Representative Joseph would agree. We, we want rates to go down across the board and we'll continue to work together uh, in a bipartisan manner moving forward over the next several years. So, Donnie Joseph, when you hear something like that, I'm, you know, the, the cards could be held by the industry. If an industry pulls out of Florida, it benefits nobody. And I, I see you shaking your head. So, so what do you think? So I, I'm so happy to hear a speaker designate say that. I mean, if if rates if rate freezes are on the table, I would absolutely love to discuss that. And I think that would give real relief to property owners around the state of Florida. Republicans have had control for quite some time. They've had every opportunity to freeze rates or or do some kind of cap to give people relief as opposed to just giving relief one-sided. Um, I hear the, the concerns. So I would, if, if that's the offer that's on the table, I would absolutely love to work with Republicans to put a cap on insurance rates to give real relief to our homeowners because we know that people are already getting kicked off of their insurance as we speak. We know that in the next three months, those rates will increase by at least 40%. So the last time we've had some kind of freeze like this was when Charlie Crist was governor. So if the Speaker of the House and the President of the Senate are willing to work with us to have a cap, that would provide real relief to insurance companies. As far as these, this um, thing about frivolous lawsuits, it's interesting because the frivolous lawsuits um, are unfortunately mostly because of insurance companies and defense attorneys that don't want to settle real claims. No insurance company or no homeowner that I know of gets into litigation with their insurance company when they're paying out valid claims. The reason they have to go to an attorney is because the insurance company is not playing fair. But instead of helping consumers in that regard, my colleagues across the aisle in these last special session and punishment to, I guess, the trial bar have just basically eviscerated their, their ability to help consumers to get their fair shake because we know it's not an, an even playing field when you have the little guy going up against the big insurance company. There's, um, you know, that that kind of was hashed out. There are definitely two perspectives to that. I, I have a couple of more questions. I hope that the two of you have a couple of more minutes. Can we go one more round and right after this break? Yes. Representatives Danny Perez, Dottie Joseph, um, I want to talk a little bit about the will he or won't he, the governor running for president. Let's just wait until he announces because isn't everyone just over the question anyway. But one of the bills passed in the House and Senate, um, the elections bill, which is pretty wide ranging, also has a component that eliminates the resign to run law. We had the Senate president here, Kathleen Pasadomo, who fully backed if someone from the legislature or governor is going to be running for president from her state, then she she was fully behind allowing the glide path for that to happen. Uh, Danny Perez, I'm guessing you agree with that. You voted yes. Yes, I, I did vote yes, and obviously it's a touchy subject. It's a common question. I don't think there's been one interview that I've done that I don't get asked a question about the governor running for president, and I'm sure he's going to make that decision soon. The, the bill that we passed, which, by the way, the elections bill we passed this year 
was very vast. We touched a lot of different parts of, of yeah. election security. And I, I ran that bill last year, so I was very, very proud to, to see it go through the finish line this year. Specific to resign to run, uh, Madam President Pasadomo was, was, was correct in my opinion in stating that if that's something he decides to do, um, we want to make sure that if, if he at any point isn't able to get there, that he's still able to be our governor. Uh, he's done a phenomenal job here in the state of Florida. I think the voters made that known in the last election, and not just for the governor, but but even for the House and the Senate as well. And uh, if if we're able to have him in our backyard and continue to be our governor, we believe that would be best for all Floridians. And I think most voters agreed with that as well. Dottie Joseph, you voted no. I absolutely did vote no. I think somebody needs to be focused. It's a full-time job to be running for president. It's a full-time job to be running or, or running the state as governor. Um, we've already saw some of the distractions that we've seen with the governor. We had flooding in Broward County and he's off Lord knows where um, doing whatever he wants. And now they've also made his travel um, records private. So I think- Can I, can that I just address that? Because I, I want to, to yeah. your point, I want to I talk about the travel, the public records. But um, I've heard, I, I feel like, I've, I've heard a lot of people say during the flooding, the governor wasn't here, but, but factually speaking, Kevin Guthrie was at his direction, the Division of Emergency Management. So um, I just and wanted to throw fine. that out there. Sure, and I appreciate that Kevin Guthrie was, but when you have an emergency and you're in crisis, it's one thing to send someone and it's another thing for you to show up, right? If you can't serve two masters at the same time, you can divvy your time, but these, both of those positions, running for president of the United States of America and being governor of the state of Florida are beyond full-time jobs. I, and I'm sure um, Speaker-designate Perez give our all to our positions. We, we, we are engaged in other things, but these are more than full-time jobs for a part-time legislature. If that's for us, I can only imagine how much more work it is for the governor of the state of Florida. So forget about you know travel during an emergency flooding in one of the biggest counties of your state. Forget that for a second. There's so many things that come up, but if you're focused on attending to a, a public audience nationwide, you're gonna be more focused on culture wars as opposed to the needs here. You talked about Medicaid earlier. There is a significant gap of Medicaid coverage right here in the, in the, 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 the state of Florida. The speaker talked about people wanting people to work. Well, there are people who cannot, who are already working and still can't afford coverage because the ACA kicks in at just over $30,000. But Florida, if you have a family, so if you're an adult and you have a family of three, you, you don't get coverage between that $6,000 gap and $30,000 gap. Those are the people that are lost. And we're losing billions of dollars each year because our governor is focused on running for president and doing these culture war things as opposed to fixing property insurance, focusing on Medicaid and the things that ha that matter right here to Floridians. So let, so, me, let me ask, um, you know, certainly that that is the Democratic perspective, no doubt that we've heard. Uh, you, at, you mentioned something about the transparency. And Danny, I wanted to ask you about that because within this law, it also takes away the public records aspect of the governor's travel schedule and also visitors to the governor's mansion. Those are things, you know, he is the people's governor and he lives in the people's house. So the lack of public records and the shielding of that information, uh, a lot of people find problematic from a public records point of view. What's your take on that? 
Yeah, and the governor spoke to this issue yesterday right right after Sine Die, and uh, the sole purpose was for security reasons. So the, the governor obviously has become a worldwide figure, not just a, a statewide or a national figure, and he has ran in, into some, some threats, and obviously he has little children as well, and uh, me personally, I have little children, and I understand the, the concern that he would have traveling, and sometimes people waiting for him in certain uh, places that he goes to visit, and so this is more than anything to shield him and his family from potential dangers, but, but Glenn, uh, real quick, uh, you know, and I, I am going to pivot quickly to respond to some of that. We're not talking about uh, some of the important things that the legislature has done, especially on the Republican side. We had 400% increase uh, on kid care to make sure that all children receive health care in the state of Florida. No one has mentioned that. We have a pilot program that is Actually, we mentioned it at the top of this program. I missed <laughs> we it. We talked all it, about that, yes. I missed it. I'm sorry about that. But 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 to go back <laughs> to Miami, you know, we have a pilot program that, that is eventually going to come to Miami-Dade County, and I was a huge supporter of it, to make sure that those people that are on the wait list that are developmentally disabled no longer have to be on a wait list. And we have put 10 of millions of dollars into this pilot program to make sure that hopefully we can roll this out throughout the entire state and make sure that anyone that is autistic, Down syndrome, or any sort of disability uh, that they may have, developmentally disabled people, that they, that they can receive that, that health care that is necessary, that there is no more wait list. That program is going to happen in our own backyard, and it was, quite frankly, the most important legislation for me personally that I could have been a part of and that I passed. So uh, I want you I want you to know, we, we absolutely, um, House Speaker Paul Renner was with us for uh, two segments, and we did talk all about that. I want you also to know that that our time together is up. I hope you both will be in when we open the studio, come and sit at the table and talk about so much more. And I really do appreciate your time. Of course, thank, thank you, Lena. All right, and we will be right back. Our time together is up. We are so grateful for your time for being here with us. Remember, keep in touch.